Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. And our guest today is Tiesel Muir Harmony. She is the curator of the Apollo Collection at the National Air and Space Museum. Uh, and she's also the author of Operation Moonglow, a political history of Project Apollo. Tiesel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, really excited about it. So we're going to go ahead and dive right into it here. You say fairly on that the moon landing and diplomacy were profoundly and intricately allied. Could you go into a little bit more depth on that? I'd be happy to. So Jerome Reasoner, I think, did a great job of sort of summing it up. So I'll just reference what he says, and then I'll go into some more detail. But so Reasoner was Kennedy's science advisor, and Kennedy asked him to look into the future of American spaceflight during the transition. And he looked into lunar exploration and he said that this is not an issue in terms of science or technology. That's not how we make this decision. This is a decision about, this is a technological means for political ends. It's very, very clear that sending humans to the moon was going to serve the United States' political interests and it had to be evaluated in those terms. And so this, this idea that um, the Apollo program, the moon landing, and diplomacy were really closely related, really has roots in that, that period of time when the Kennedy administration thought that what they needed to do to serve the administration and the United States' foreign relations interests was send humans to the moon. So uh, why Kennedy decided to invest in lunar exploration was for larger geopolitical reasons. And so I think it's important to, to really emphasize that point um, when looking at the history of Project Apollo, and that this is a moment in, in time when activities in space, so Sputnik or the Soviet Union's launch of Yuri Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, first person in space, impacted the standing of the United States internationally. So space feats were had an impact on diplomacy. And then um, vice versa, these political incentives, um, these ideas about how the United States should interact with the world, should invest in spaceflight to um, engage with the world in a new way. They're all, they're all tied together, and it's sort of a sort of essential piece of that early Apollo story. You know, everybody loves to compare the American program to the Soviet program during this time, and, and they're very different, as you point out. You know, you make this this point that Kennedy's talking about the Shepard flight, the Alan Shepard flight, that, you know, this flight is made out in the open. There were possibilities of failure that people could see. So how did the American system prove to have an advantage to the political realm? And was this a hindrance for the Soviet program? It's a great question, and there was a very different approach, especially when it came to the role of spaceflight within public diplomacy. And the United States' space program, the civilian and military space programs were separate. And so it was a lot easier for the United States to carry out their civilian space program in public view for the world to see. They didn't have to worry as much about uh, security concerns as the Soviet Union did, which had a, their space program was, it wasn't separate like that. It was, it was sort of... Um, centralized is not the right word, but <laughs> military and civilian space were combined in the Soviet Union and how they were done. And, and so the Soviet Union wasn't sharing much information, especially when it came to hardware. And the United States was able to share a lot of information. It became 
sort of from an American perspective, it symbolized an open democratic society. It was able to um, sort of project that message internationally. And uh, the United States really sort of leaned in. And so they sent spacecraft on international tours. They invited press to launches. And these were things the Soviet Union was not doing. And there's a funny story. Um, an American diplomat made some comment that all the information about the Soviet program was coming from uh, the United States. <laughs> and and the United States was re- responsible for disseminating a lot of information about the, the Soviet program. So it was getting filtered through these U.S. networks. Well, that wasn't exactly correct, but there was this idea that when it came to disseminating information about spaceflight internationally, the U- United States was had a, a really robust program. And and at the time, it was interpreted as being very, very impactful. There's another way to look at this. So early on, the United States was sending their spacecraft internationally on these tours, these global tours. They would draw a huge crowd. Um, the Soviet Union was sending cosmonauts internationally, which would also draw a crowd. But um, if you think about being able to see something in person, especially something that is so brand new and is part of this brand new effort. So spaceflight, you know, this is something that for so many years was just part of the imagination and then it became real life. And so to be able to witness the evidence of that by seeing something in person um, was really impactful to people. It gave people a personal connection. So that was seen as quite influential. There There are a number of different ways that you can look at the sort of the contrast of the openness and the closeness. But ultimately, by the late 1960s, people in the U.S. government interpreted that openness as one of the most critical elements of the impact of Apollo 11 and the moon landing was that it was open and that people felt like participants in the program. And that was... Uh, sort of interpreted as one of the the greatest impacts of the moon landing was that everyone around the world felt like a participant um, and that was seen as advantageous to the United States. So let's talk about Jack Kennedy for a minute. He's often remembered for really kickstarting the American space program uh, and obviously in particular the drive to the moon. Uh, But why did Kennedy come to view space as a winning issue? When Kennedy became president, he was a little bit skeptical about spaceflight, or maybe maybe that's not the right way to put it. He wasn't as interested in it as you might expect. And he thought space exploration might be a great tool for diplomacy. He thought that the United States should pursue cooperative programs, including with the Soviet Union. That's what he hoped for when he became president. He wasn't hoping for uh, competition through spaceflight. But it was Yuri Gagarin's flight in April of 1961, and the international reaction to this flight in particular, that really cemented for Kennedy the importance of spaceflight. As he put it, the impact of the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. So that's actually the phrasing from uh, his speech to Congress when he proposed Project Apollo. He's very, very explicit about it in that speech, but also in his discussion with his advisors. He saw spaceflight after Yuri Gagarin's flight, after Sputnik, really affecting people around the world. He saw the news coverage and uh, you can get a Life magazine issue from right after Gagarin's flight. And there are all these interviews with people around the world talking about what it means about the Soviet Union, what it suggests about their 
um, national strength and their technological capability and what it might imply for the United States' global standing. So he witnessed all this and he thought, you know, it's going to have to be space. At first, he thought maybe the United States should pursue something else extraordinarily impressive as opposed to space flight. So uh, something like the desalination of water, he asked about that. He asked his advisors about that. But it became clear relatively quickly that it had to be about space, that the United States needed to set some kind of bold goal in spaceflight in order to compete with the Soviet Union at this moment. Yeah, I don't think the first man to desalinate water has quite the same ring to it as the first man to set foot on another planet, but maybe that's just me. There, there's some really funny ideas of how to compete in this this kind of way. And after Sputnik, actually, the United States, were, we were looking into different types of things that might be impressive. One of my favorite is digging the deepest hole ever. <laughs> and that's it. I think landing humans on the moon is, probably has a bit more appeal than digging the deepest hole. <laughs> so moving forward a bit from Kennedy getting into the Johnson administration, you know, you see Lyndon Johnson really latch on to the space program pretty early, not just for its international use, but there's a domestic politics at play as well. So how is it that Johnson and the Democratic Party latch on to space and how does that really come to their advantage in the post-Kennedy era? The timing of the launch of Sputnik in the fall of October 1957, the fall of 57, is probably pretty important to Johnson's response to Sputnik and the United States' response to Sputnik. So this is at a moment in time when the Democratic Party was really struggling with the civil rights issue. And they saw the launch of Sputnik as a great way to critique the Eisenhower administration, to critique the Republican Party and draw attention away from especially the Southern Democrats issues with civil rights. And so Johnson really leaned into it. So this idea for him was that it was going to be good for his party. It was going to get more Democrats elected in in the midterm elections and that it might also help him become nominated for the presidency. And so he really leaned into promoting the, the idea that Sputnik was a new Pearl Harbor, he called Sputnik. He compared it to Alamo. He, whenever he had the chance, he he really understood the importance of media and drama to serve political ends. And so these were not just in terms of this larger geopolitical context. It was really also tied to domestic politics and politicking. So the the rivalries between the Democratic and the Republican parties and Eisenhower really tried to assure to everyone that Sputnik did not indicate that the Soviet Union had greater technology, was more advanced, that there was a national security threat. And he was correct about that, but it didn't it didn't quite stick as well as he had hoped. And in part because people like Lyndon Johnson saw his own personal political advantage to framing it a different way. You know, one of the people and I'm always fascinated by the behind the scenes folks, uh, the folks who are really either getting stuff done or, or working hard on on policy decisions. And I think one of the people who often gets overlooked in this, and you've already mentioned him, is uh, Kennedy science advisor Jerome Wiesner. Can you tell us a little bit about what role he plays here? Jerome Wiesner plays an interesting role because he was quite skeptical when it came to this goal of sending humans to the moon. And when he was evaluating the American space program during the transition, he was even concerned about human spaceflight. He didn't think that that was or that should be a a national priority. And he advised Kennedy to reconsider continuing with the Mercury program. So this would be the first American human spaceflight program. And it was uh, one individual astronaut at a time. Um, The first launch was in 61. So this program was already underway. But 
He warned Kennedy that, you know, if there was a problem, it could negatively impact the United States and that it was expensive and this is not really serving scientific ends. So Kennedy's own science advisor was quite skeptical. And I think that it is so important to remember that context when, when Kennedy became president of the skepticism of human spaceflight. Um, in a similar way, Eisenhower also received reports about the cost of sending humans to the moon. Before he left office, he listened to these reports and he said that it was far too expensive. It was not worth the cost. And so in early, early 61, at the end of 1960, this idea that humans would be going to the moon within the decade was just not, didn't was not on the table, really. I mean, it was being evaluated, but Eisenhower and Kennedy were very, very skeptical about the cost. And in part because people like Jerome Wiesner didn't think that it served scientific and technological um, purposes. And he actually told Kennedy that he could uh, he'd be more likely to support the Apollo program if it didn't there was not a suggestion that this was for science or technology, um, that this was this was a political program. Well, that's interesting because I think one of the most memorable aspects of the Apollo program, or at least the one that sticks with most of us, uh, is not necessarily the scientific component, but it's the imagery, right? Carl Sagan talks about this and how these photographs from a lot of these flights, you know, awakened our slumbering planetary consciousness, I think is the term he uses. And that's something, you know, I used to emphasize that to my students. I know, Brian, you probably emphasize that to your students as well. So tell us a little bit about like this imagery, the photography and the impact that it has on American society and culture and, you know, both from a cultural sense, but also in a political sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a great part of the story. And for one reason, it really emphasizes the importance of the broader public in this story, that it wasn't just about the astronauts. It's not just about what's taking place on the lunar surface or that that people went there. It's it's that we are able to participate in some ways or to see these images and relate to the astronauts or get a new sense of Earth's place within the cosmos ourselves. And so part of the important legacy of Apollo and its larger historical significance is our broader connection to um, spaceflight and how it impacted people around the world. Now, these images, so Earthrise is a great example, really did have a, quite an influence at the time. And part of this was because, uh, well, first of all, the astronauts took the image, which was important. It was processed right away and it was disseminated right away. So by the State Department, U.S. Information Agency, by NASA, by the news media in general, but then also by Johnson as he was about to leave office. Uh, he decided that this image would do <laughs> would be a beneficial gift to give foreign leaders when he left office to symbolize the ambitions of his presidency. He was concerned about being you know, associated with the Vietnam War and the escalation of the Vietnam War. And he thought this image demonstrates America's interest in peace and brotherhood and and shows us what technology can can give us. So, you know, shows us that technology can lead to a greater consciousness of global interconnection. And so he gave this image to foreign leaders around the world. He gave it to Ho Chi Minh and he, to Mao. He gave, that was optimistic, but it turns out he did get a thank you letter from Ho, Ho Chi Minh, which is a bit surprising. He he saw that as a sign that you know spaceflight is universal and it shows us what connects us. But that image was really powerful. And a, another important part of that image is that it became a global icon. And so people around the world saw it and associated it with these stories. And it's something that um, links us because we have that shared experience with it. Um, there are other examples like uh, the blue marble, um, sometimes called the whole earth image from Apollo 17. 
it was impactful as well and continues to be till this day. But one of the things that the, that imagery does is it provides us a perspective. It gives us the astronaut's perspective, but it's also part of this shared experience of spaceflight we have on Earth. And I think that's an important element as well. Yeah, I think that by the time we get to Apollo 11, uh, a lot of what you read, there's a sense around the globe that we are in this together, that we as a human race are going to land on the moon, that we are going to walk on the moon, that we are exploring the cosmos. What do you make of that type of language? That is the, the classic <laughs> space race language. And one of the things I wanted to do in my book is really emphasize how intentional that language is and that it wasn't just spontaneous. And the global audience for the moon landing wasn't just spontaneous. It actually took hard work of people working within the U.S. State Department and U.S. Information Agency and at NASA and, and the White House all working together to frame spaceflight as for all mankind or humankind, that the lunar landing was an accomplishment of everyone, that we were part of it. And part of sort of where this framing came from is Early on, when the United States was promoting its space accomplishments abroad, there was a great emphasis on technological capability, on science, and um, this emphasis that this this wasn't propaganda. This was just the United States wanting to share these these things with the rest of the world. This idea that it was you know modern and part of the future, but. The United States noticed, um, so these public diplomats stationed around the world observed how people interacted with exhibits and and films about the space program and radio and all sorts of media they were producing. And they noticed that it was more effective when the media emphasized that this was for humankind as opposed to this is a symbol of American greatness. And so there was a conscious effort to start downplaying the United States' role in the program and instead emphasize uh, this idea of global participation and that this was for all humankind and everyone was part of this experience. And they saw great returns. And so even before the first moon landing, there were instructions disseminated to all public diplomats. This is how you should talk about Apollo. We should downplay. It's an American accomplishment. Everyone knows the United States is responsible for this program. We should not emphasize it because that act, that emphasis might hurt us internationally. So there was a lot of guidance to figure out how to encourage this sense of global participation in the flight. And, and then that was in, viewed as one of the most impactful parts of the Apollo program. And it's political significance at the time. So in evaluations of the, the impact of Apollo 11, um, the U.S. Information Agency and the State Department really saw this, the sense of we as a sign that, that the Apollo program had an incredible impact. They, they talked about it as a new form of politics, um, the sense of global unity brought about by this American program, um, but uh, this sense of global unity could be quite powerful and useful for the United States. And so that's a somewhat long answer, but this idea of we is really, really essential to um, the Apollo story, but also tells us a lot about the important role played by diplomats within sort of framing um, how we think about Apollo even today. It reminds me of, you know, when your favorite sports team wins the World Series or the Super Bowl, you know, there, there's this sense that we won the World Series or we won the Super Bowl. But this was this was something on a global scale not seen before, not seen since, and I don't know that that we will see it again uh, in the near future, at least. Uh, and so this this global sense of we, the people of Earth, did this is is really fascinating. 
one of the things that really augmented that sense was in the media coverage of the first lunar landing, there was coverage of the global audience. So if you were watching CBS television coverage, you were watching reporters stationed around the world reporting on the audiences around the world following the flight. If you read the newspaper anywhere around the world, you were reading about that global audience. And so not only um, was this sort of people watching the astronauts take those steps on the moon and feeling connected to it, but it was emphasized that this was a shared global experience. And so you couldn't really follow the flight without an awareness that everyone around the world was also following the flight with you. And that became such a critical part of the story that one of my favorite stories is when the astronauts came home and they were in quarantine and Buzz Aldrin, uh, they started watching the the media coverage of their flight for the first time. And uh, Buzz Aldrin said to Neil Armstrong, uh, looks like they're having a party on Earth and we missed the whole thing, which I think is a sort of great sort of way to talk about how important what was going on Earth was to that larger story. So it wasn't just about those two astronauts walking on the lunar surface. It was really about what was taking place on the moon and also what was taking place on Earth. I recently read something by uh, astronaut Fred Hayes of Apollo 13, uh, and he mentioned the same thing during Apollo 13, that you know the Pope ha- ha- held a prayer vigil uh, at the Vatican. And so there was, uh, again, this, this global sense of, it wasn't these three astronauts who were in danger, but the entire world uh, was was watching and wait, waiting for their safe return. That's true. There was a lot of concern around the world. Um, during that time, there was a World's Fair in Japan, and um, they actually set up a, a little impromptu ner- news service in the American Pavilion because people were coming to the American Pavilion for news, sort of also as a vigil. Um, there was a lot of concern globally for those astronauts. And Nixon was, he was concerned for them. He cared a lot about the astronauts, but he was also concerned about how public these things were and and the potential impact it might have on his re-election. And so the Apollo 13 mission changed the trajectory of spaceflight in ways that you might not have expected because Nixon started to get concerned about future lunar landings after that mission because of his own re-election and because everyone was paying attention and everyone was following the astronauts and wanted them to return home safely. And and so it, it sort of speaks to both of those things. But um, yeah, the world was was really invested in that Apollo 13 mission and the safety of the astronauts. I think we can safely blame Nixon then for the cancellation of, of 18, 19, and 20. Uh, and I'll just have to continue to live with the dreams of what could have been. You don't, you don't have to touch that one. Yeah, it, it's, like, it's a complicated story with Nixon, but you know, he, he did love the astronauts. He saw great value in how the popularity of the lunar landing could advance his foreign relations priorities, how it could advance his position within the United States. And so he really leveraged the popularity of the missions and of the astronauts um, to serve his own political ends. But then he also saw some potential vulnerability as well and was concerned about the cost of the program. And so he really did shift the trajectory of the American space program and and it had a a long legacy, let's say. Yeah. You know, you're talking about all the messaging and how intentional it was. That's something that really jumped out at me while I was reading this because you know, I'm that guy. I have the NASA T-shirt. I have the NASA lapel pin. I am constantly talking about the inspirational nature of the space program and all this. And reading this book, I just realized how much of that was an intentional message that was crafted that I had just internalized. 
you know, as a kid growing up. And you mentioned Nixon. He's another example of someone that I think leveraged this, the messaging of this. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about how Nixon interpreted that messaging and used it not only publicly, but it seems like privately uh, he was very excited about the space program and it had a big effect on him. Can you tell us more about him? He was he was very excited, especially early in his presidency, about the potential of the space program. And he references the Apollo 8 mission in his inaugural address. He asked Apollo 8 commander Frank Borman to go to Europe on this diplomatic tour ahead of his own visit to Europe. So, so Nixon, at the beginning of his presidency, he really wanted to be seen as the peacemaker. He really wanted to find uh, an end to the Vietnam War and improve relations with China. And he also wanted to be more popular domestically. And so he thought, you know, I should travel to Europe and it will show Americans how how well loved I am internationally. <laughs> so he had expected his trip to Europe to in, in some way support his domestic politics. And so, but to be more effective, he sent the popular astronaut Frank Borman to Europe visited the same cities. And then Nixon went right on the heels of that trip. And then again, after the Apollo 11 uh, mission, he sent those astronauts on a global tour. He also traveled through Southeast Asia on his Operation Moonglow diplomatic tour. And he, and he thought the popularity of the space program would help sort of smooth over conversations about the United States' involvement in Vietnam. This is when he introduced the Nixon Doctrine. So actually the same day as the splashdown, he he first articulated the Nixon Doctrine in public. It wasn't planned that he was going to do it that day, but he was sort of, I guess, swept away with the whole, the whole experience of meeting the astronauts at splashdown. But he did see a lot of potential in leveraging that popularity. And other people did as well. So President Kennedy is another uh, great example of, of someone who saw that, that potential to use spaceflight, not only within this larger sort of grand strategy, but also to serve particular personal political interests. And in a similar way, Kennedy sent a spacecraft ahead of his visit to, to Paris, and it helped smooth the way as well. But what you mentioned about, you know, the NASA logos and the T-shirts and the popularity of NASA, and it's it's domestic and it's international. And whenever I travel, I always like to keep an eye out for how many NASA shirts I see. And you see them everywhere around the world. And I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to speak about the space program around the world and Without fail, people will come up to me and tell me about their own personal experience with the lunar landing, where they were, or they'll tell me about their, you know, their parents' experience with the lunar landing. That this was really an event that touched people uh, around the globe. It was part of personal history of people in every single nation, and and there's a, a lot of enthusiasm and identification with it to this day. But it is it is amazing because when we think back on it, we often we don't see those connections or the the intentions of the US government in in framing it that way and in disseminating those images and ensuring that people were going to be able to to access information about space flight. We've spoken about this a lot on the global level and the the presidents of the United States sending astronauts uh, on goodwill tours or out in front of them, but it's also an enormously local things. So it's not just the presidents that that can or want to use the astronauts. It's U.S. senators, it's U.S. congressmen, all the way down to having, you know, an astronaut in their week in the barrel visiting some public school. So how are the astronauts used, you know, more locally, more domestically? Well, so my work really focuses on the, the international side of that. So the, the astronauts did visit schools within the United States in this period. They had a somewhat different experience and they did traveling overseas. So for the most part, the astronauts were received really warmly on their international trips. And 
you know, there, there are a few reasons for this. One of them is that they were generally sent to places where we were pretty assured that they were going to be well received. You know, we didn't want the publicity of the astronauts, you know, having to deal with protesters. But there was a, a lot of enthusiasm internationally within the United States. There was some more pushback. And some of the astronauts were asked to visit college campuses. As you I mean, picture college campuses in 1969, 1970. And um, they were asked a lot of questions about uh, the Vietnam War, and you know many of these astronauts uh, they have they have military backgrounds. They their friends are serving in Vietnam. It's very close and personal to them, and and some of them even expressed a sense of guilt that they weren't there fighting or that their service to their country was through being an astronaut because this was part of the Cold War. Um, and this is their service to their country within that context of the Cold War. And so the astronaut tours domestically, they, it was, you know, they were popular. Many people loved them, but it wasn't, it wasn't as smooth going, I guess you could say, because the United States at this time was um, really struggling with all these different issues and especially the, the Vietnam War. Yeah, I've always found in many of the uh, the astronaut memoirs and autobiographies, they will talk about not having served uh, in Vietnam. And you mentioned how some of them felt guilt uh, and some of them felt they, they didn't do their job or they didn't contribute. And we tend to view them as, you know, the, the ultimate explorers, you know, uh, contributing to uh, their country. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the Vietnam War was never really far from their mind because you said they were military men, they were test pilots, and uh, to a certain extent, they felt like that was something they they should either be doing or should have done. Exactly. And and some of them, like Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, was really, really explicit about why he was an astronaut, which some of the astronauts were loved spaceflight from an early age, you know, built built model rockets and or loved to fly. But Borman really clearly expressed that he was there for service to his country. Um, and he thought that that was the best way he could serve. And you saw that sort of play out and how well he did um, in representing the United States when he traveled internationally. And so I mentioned he traveled to Europe after his flight with his family, and he was seen as just an incredible representation of an American. So he he was very frank, which is silly because that's his first name, but it is true. He was described the positive way as, you know, he was unscripted and people really felt like they could trust what he said, that he wasn't just repeating the lines of someone else, that he was there to share scientific information with them and um, he really engaged with those audiences. And he also did a great job of going to the Soviet Union, which he did shortly before the first lunar landing and, and trying to sort of build friendships with people within the Soviet space program to hopefully lead to more cooperation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So, you know, looking at all of these issues so many years later, you know, what do you think the legacy of Apollo really is and, and how do you think it should really be remembered? So in a sort of in a straightforward way, I think Apollo should be remembered as part of global history. We need to start thinking it less in terms of American history and an American accomplishment and recognize that it played an important role within global history more generally. And one of the things that I emphasize in my book is that it also contributed to the evolution of globalization in this period. And, and one of the, the changes in globalization in this moment was this awareness of global in interconnection. And so the process of globalization had been going on for a while. Um, goods and ideas and people were traveling around the world at a faster and faster rate. But it was in this period that there was an increased awareness of global interconnection. And 
I think that the Apollo program and all these associated programming related to it, so the dissemination of information, this global communications infrastructure built up by the United States to ensure this, this global audience for Apollo, the ways that the mission was covered, this emphasis on the accomplishment being part of all humankind, these, these global icons like the Earthrise image, all of that contributed to an increased awareness of global interconnection on this earth and, and this sense of global unity. And I think that that is really important to understand that that awareness was not, was not spontaneous and that the, there was sort of roots of nationalism within globalism. And I think that the Apollo story is, is really critical to that, that larger story of the evolution of, of globalization. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this has been a great conversation. We're about out of time. Uh, the book, again, is Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo from Basic Books. Teasel, where can we find more of you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, I think it's Teasel Muir uh, is my handle, or, or on Instagram as well, which is just Teasel, I think. Maybe it's Teasel Muir as well. I should keep better track of these things. But also, it, I encourage everyone to come to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in person if they're able to in the fall um, with the opening of new exhibits, um, including one on lunar exploration. Um, and part of this story is told in that exhibit. So that'll be opening this fall. Fantastic. Brian, where are you? Uh, so you can find me at www.brianlastly.com and still on Twitter at Brian Lastly. Mike, what about yourself? I'm at mwhankins.com or on Twitter occasionally at Hankenstein, spelled with a T-I-E-N. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email or submit an article for publication, please visit balloonstodrones.com and use the contact submission form. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.